It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio, and I have Oliver Peters on the line. Oliver is one of these quiet, strong, intelligent, very humble, incredibly talented people who work in so many different areas of what I call the entertainment industry. Oliver, you are an editor, you're an amazing colorist, you are a post-production workflow consultant, you run an operation with several editors working with you at any one point in time. I even noticed you have done still photography, which is beautiful. We all know you're an incredibly creative writer, both in the tech and the creative side. And I guess I would also call you, although I don't know if you've used this term or not, but you're definitely an industry analyst because you've got such a broad-based knowledge. So I'm excited and welcome to the show. <laughs> well, well, thank you for the uh, big buildup there. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's just wonderful because I know uh, we haven't prepared this. I can pretty much ask you just about any question that comes to mind, and I know you're going to have an answer. I thought it might be really fun for us to start off with. Uh, I was going through your site, looking at some of your videos. Do you want to maybe pull up your colorist demo reel and... Uh, we can tell people where to go to find that, and if they want to watch as we talk about it, or you can just, uh, you know, it can just prompt some questions. If you're listening and you want to see the video, go to vimeo.com backslash Oliver Peters. That's O-L-I-V-E-R-P-E-T-E-R-S. And all of these uh, videos are amazing, but I'm looking at the colorist demo reel. So if I click on the colorist demo reel, Travel Lifestyle, what really interested me was there's different styles here, different cameras, different resolutions. Can you talk about the challenges of a colorist when a client comes to you and says, okay, I have this work, you want to work on it. Uh, what's the biggest challenge for you working with uh, directors and and cinematographers? Well, uh, a lot of it depends on how you're going to get the material in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of most of the stuff on this reel, I have uh, generally been able to work with the camera original material. So uh, that that way, I'm it's it's not an abstraction that some other editor touched, and then I'm getting you know, what he laid off as a flat file. So nothing is already pre-baked into the file. So that that helps. And as a colorist, if you can insist upon that, that's a, uh, a good starting point. The downside of that is it's a bit more work uh, because you've got to make sure that it you know, matches the XML or whatever you're given for the edit decision list. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it puts a little more of a, a finishing aspect to the colorist side of what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but in terms of challenges, obviously, a lot of this stuff, especially the stuff that's on this reel, is a, uh, a, a mixture of different cameras uh, depending on what they had available to them. So typically with travel and lifestyle and stuff, you've got a mix of what I would tend to call professional cameras, uh, like a, um, you know, an Airy Mini or a RED or a, a Panasonic EVA-1. But then mixed in with that, you've got various uh, DSLRs, like a Panasonic GH5 or a Canon 1DX or something like that, 
plus GoPro, plus drone cameras. And the challenge is obviously to make that as uniform as possible. It depends on, you know, if you're just doing general B-roll, because some of this is for a client where it's a library of um, lifestyle product shots that they use on reoccurring, you know, edits. And then others are from an, an actual short form show. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the shows, it's got to be consistent, right? So doesn't matter what the camera is, doesn't matter what the, uh, the lighting conditions are. And in some cases, that's more run and gun than you would like it to be. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously the first issue is just trying to make everything look good and consistent and that the cameras match and so on. Then the second challenge is that you're working with the DP. So if the DP has uh, something in mind like it's Cuba and I want it to have more of this kind of tone or it's the Bahamas and I want it to have something else or we're in Ireland and I really want to accentuate the greens, that then layers on top of that, right? So you're mm-hmm. trying to not only make sure everything is matches and consistent throughout the length of the show, but that it also has a, a stylistic aspect to it that is uh, pleasing to the director of photography and also the director. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reel is beautiful. I'm looking through here. You have exterior landscapes. You've got day shots, night shots, macro shots. Can you remember uh, some of the cameras that were used on this particular piece or? Uh, You name it, it was probably used. (laughs) So uh, underwater stuff we did uh, on some of this was red. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of GoPro, but but the better looking stuff was red. Mm-hmm. The aerials were several different types of DJI drones. Most of the things that were close-ups of people and so on uh, were either the Panasonic EVA-1 or an Airy Mini. Uh, some of the stuff was a Canon C300 and... As I recall, there's also some DSLR stuff in there, uh, either a, a Canon 1DX or um, may, have, may have been. Yeah, I think I think there was some Sony A7. Mm-hmm. I don't know which model A7s, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, also some Panasonic GH5. So. Uh, talk to me for a minute about what happens quite frequently now on shoots when you, you're not just using one type of camera, you're using maybe on the same shots. I've seen people use a combination of one of the larger cameras, like a Red or an Airy or even one of the Black Magic cameras, and then have second second angle using a DSLR. And I always think about the colorist when I see something like that, and I think oh my goodness, this is going to be a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Well, it depends on whether the colorimetry of the cameras inherently match each other. So one of the things we found on this is some of the interviews uh, use, well, some of the shooting, they used an Airy as the prime camera, and then the second unit stuff was with the Panasonic. And what we found is that if they took time to match the cameras at the start of the shoot, they actually lined up pretty well with each other, that the Panasonic color science is close enough to the Airy color science. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if it's a, you know, if it's a, a fairly standard 
lighting environment uh, that you could kind of swing it uh, and get into the, a, a good enough uh, look to the two of them. Some of the interviews, uh, what's uh, common is to do with three cameras, and a lot of times that may be two matching cameras for the left and right close-up sides, and then maybe a DSLR of some sort sitting on a wide shot for your two shot or whatever. Mm -hmm. And again, if it's similar color science, you know, if it's all Panasonic or if it's all Sony or if it's all um, uh, uh, Canon, you're going to have a better shot at those things all matching. Mm -hmm. The other thing is most of this stuff is shot in some sort of a log profile, depending on the camera. And that gives... Um, me a little more latitude to uh, to play with it you know it protects some of the highlights in some cases uh, and and so that's one of the things because if you if you shoot stuff with uh, you know a rec 709 profile that was going to be my next question <laughs> yeah go ahead yeah <laughs> I mean some if it's a controlled environment sometimes that's good but if you know, if you're really in an unpredictable lighting environment, then it's it's a bit dicey. Uh, certain cameras, for instance, uh, I really like the look of the Canon 5Ds, which were, you know, popular when this whole DSLR thing first cranked up. Uh, but they do tend to have a fairly rich uh, color profile. And if you shoot that, with one camera and then take some other camera and shoot it in Rec. 709, you're going to have a harder time matching those up to each other than if you started out in, in log to begin with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's obviously you have no control over that, uh, but uh, it depends on the DP. And if the DP is, you know, savvy enough in terms of the pros and cons of different cameras that he may or ha have a chance to use. I found in the past that, and I may be wrong because it changes all the time, but Sony shoots cooler and Canon tends to shoot natively warmer. Is that still true? Do you find that to be true? Yeah, I, I'd still find that to be true. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of the Sony cameras. Mm -hmm. As far as their DSLRs, I... I know there are several different LUTs that you can apply and stuff like that. I, I never end up really happy with any of the Cinegamma LUTs. And mm -hmm. I don't know whether it's the camera or just the operator or what the problem is. But I find on those, I have a better shot at getting a good-looking image if I don't use the LUT at all and just grade it, um, you know, normally. And uh, But, yeah, different cameras have different color sciences. So, you know, people like the look of uh, Aerie, and they went for a color science that kind of got them closer to film, uh, but that makes it hard to match sometimes, right? You'll get yeah. shots where skin tones match very nicely, but then you'll have some object in the background that's that's blue, and for whatever reason, you can't get the two blues to really look consistent between the cameras. And that's mm -hmm. just because 
one's an Airy and one's a Sony or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, this stuff in Cuba looks absolutely beautiful. It's it's rich, it's sharp, It's uh, the colors are gorgeous. But then, you know, it's subjective too. This is an art. Coloring is an art. I Whenever I'm in a room with a colorist, it's like watching a painter at work because there's so many different things you can do to take what a director or a DP shoots and you can apply your look to it and it can change drastically. I, I love that part of it. To me, that's some of the most fun part of filmmaking is watching the colorist make their magic towards the end. Well, it, and it also depends on the nature of the project because no colorist is necessarily going to always grade every project the same way. So I may I may approach doing a commercial differently than I would do an indie feature film, right? It, it it's just a different sensibility that you're bringing to the project because of what, you know, the nature of the project itself. What about the grading solutions? Do you use Resolve or what What do you use most of the time? Uh, all of the above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, <laughs> I started out uh, other than just, you know, the kind of outboard boxes that you had in uh, linear bays as an editor when the Avid Symphony came about. That was really my first uh, experience at, at doing, you know, color correction full time on something. And so I kind of went through Avid Symphony to uh, Apple Color when that was around to now doing uh, more Resolve. But I also do stuff inside the different applications. So uh, the shop I work at uh, most of the time, we're an all Adobe house. And for quick turnaround things, uh, I do everything with its built-in Lumetri tools. Um, I do some stuff in Final Cut 10, and I'll use some plugins, or I'll use uh, their native color correction, and it it just depends. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm pretty comfortable with all of them. If um, it kind of depends on what you're going for. So I, if you're going for a reasonably good-looking shot, just about any of the tools will get you there. Uh, Resolve is better. I tend to call it if you need kind of a surgical grade. So, you know, some of the things, if if you've got an exterior shot and you need to add extra nodes in order to isolate the sky and, you know, you retain highlight detail, all of those kinds of tricks are easier to do in Resolve than they are using plugins inside your editing tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just you know, the workflow going between whether it's wheels or curves or whatever, all of that is laid out in an easier to manage fashion in Resolve. So that's really my go-to. Um, the The downside of that is the whole round trip between the editing software Resolve and back is not very bulletproof. Hmm. Even now, I thought they were improving that. Well, they're definitely improving it, but they're, you know, first of all, it depends on how the media was handled when it went into the system, right? So because people are shooting with a lot of non-professional cameras or prosumer cameras, whatever you want to call them, you end up getting clips that, you know, five 
camera cards will all start with clip 001, right? Oh, that drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, and they, don't, and they don't have valid time code and that sort of stuff. Well, if that was just brought into the edit software, the edit software can handle that, but then it doesn't translate coming back out. So if that was properly managed before it was ever ingested into the edit system, then everything's generally going to link correctly when it gets to resolve. Mm -hmm. But then you've also got issues of certain effects that don't translate uh, in uh, one app or the other. So if you do like a standard speed change where it's now 50% or whatever and it's a constant playback, that translates pretty well. But both Final Cut and Premiere allow you to do speed ramping, which includes, you know, an acceleration or deceleration of the speed change. Well, that doesn't translate exactly the same way when you go into resolve. Uh, so it, it's those kinds of quirks. And then obviously, you know, some sort of plug-in. So usually what I try to do is when I'm working in resolve, I'll bring in all the clips. I'll bring in a, a, you know, the rough cut as a reference file, place it over there and, um, you know, compare and just make sure all the shots are the right shots, that if there's any resizing, any of that matches. And then I tend to uh, render out the individual source clips so that they go back into whatever the edit software was. So, if it started in Premiere, it ends up back in Premiere. If it started in Final Cut, it's back in Final Cut. Mm -hmm. And then the original editor can make sure that he's got all the clips and uh, everything lines up. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a few projects. Uh, typically, this would be more the case with uh, feature films and things like that where you don't have a lot of those kind of effects. Uh, the way Resolve does it uh, is fine. And there you're generally going to render out the finished movie or the movie in reels or, you know, whatever the deliverables are on that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, th and that's, uh, you know, two different workflows that are different depending on the nature of the job. You know, I hadn't really intended on asking you this, but you prompted the thought when you were talking can you just spend a moment talking to us or to DITs actually about bins and keywording and workflow and the organization of the media? Do you have some tips that you can give to people? And, and a lot of DITs are, are coming up through the ranks. They're self-taught. And so they need mentors. And a lot of times they don't have mentors. So if you had a young DIT who was starting to get work, and you as a seasoned professional wanted to give them some advice about how to organize the workflow to keep the long tail functioning, what would you tell them? Well, uh, I guess it kind of depends on what is expected of them by the production company. Uh, I, I'm not a big one on having the DIT organize the files for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I get jobs coming in from DITs sometimes, and mm -hmm. they've they've made the assumption that it's going to be an Avid job. So I'll, I'll get all the clips organized in Avid bins and, you know, I, I'm working in Premiere. So it's like, okay, you just did all this work for nothing. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, right. so so from my standpoint, 
the the main the most important thing a DIT is responsible for is making sure that the camera cards <laughs> are copied correctly <laughs> right. and that the media is in fact correct and not corrupt and so on. You know, the, if that isn't done right, then everything else is pointless. Then given the time, it would be nice to rearrange the files accordingly. So, for example, and, and again, this not everybody is going to want a DIT to work this way, but a lot of the cameras, Panasonic, Sony's, uh, Canon's to some extent, they all bury the files into these multiple folders, right? right? And those are completely useless to me as an editor. So the first thing I do when I get all of that stuff is I rearrange them into a logical sequence of, you know, here's the date, here's the camera, here's the real number, and then the clips are the next level in that hierarchy. And rename them if they know what the job is. So mm -hmm. I use some utilities that are renamers that append like a job name and a date or something like that uh, to the clip. So that's, you know, that's one of the things that we do. And so everything's already organized. Uh, but it, it depends on the job. For instance, uh, a lot of DITs are colorists and uh they have a rack of gear that they take out on location, or a, a card, rather, and they're going to do transcoding of all the files. And that's great. When you get that, uh, that's that much better for the editor. Now I've got a bunch of proxy files uh, that are ready to go, and I don't have to do that once it gets back in the shop. So there are different different approaches to that, but I'd say first and foremost, it's imperative that you uh, protect the integrity of the, the media, and then everything else is kind of secondary. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times DITs, especially in field work, are expected to make multiple copies in order to protect the media. And that's where naming conventions become very, very important, because if you ever have to link back to the original media, sometimes it can be really tough to find that, particularly if you're doing a shoot where you've got four, five, six, or more cameras going at the same time. Um yeah, so this is really good advice. I think uh, what I'm getting from this is that we should advise anyone on the crew working in the studio or the field to have a really good conversation with the editor. Oh, absolutely. Before you start doing anything, because you could really mess it up for them if you do it wrong. Uh, the studio expects you to protect the media and they expect you to make multiple copies, but most of the people who hire those crew members um, don't really understand the underlying objectives of that particular job. So this is really good advice. And I do, you have written extensively on workflow and I would like to encourage people to go to your blog. Uh, where do they go to find your blog? So uh, the blog is digital films, all one word. So digitalfilms.wordpress.com. Okay. 
Yeah, and I think if you scroll through Oliver's blog, you're going to find a lot of conversations about the different areas of workflow and some of the questions I'm asking him today are answered on the blog because I can't keep you on for eight hours, Oliver. (laughs) I'd like to, but I don't think that would work. So can we backtrack for a minute? Because I'm very, very curious about you and what were you like as a kid and when did you realize you were a creative person what got you started oh gosh i don't know uh (laughs) i uh i was probably not thinking of anything in this field going through up through my junior year of high school and then i did a a summer program in virginia at a college and decided to volunteer at the campus radio station as a DJ. And uh, they, uh, at that point, I think I got bitten by the bug. And so when I got back to town for my senior year of high school, I was on the air as a DJ. And then that kind of led to a job in television. So I, I, um, my first year at college, I ended up working for the local PBS station, uh, and they originally did not have an automated master control. So this is going back to like the mid to the early 70s. And so the way breaks were handled is, you know, the the promo for a 30-minute show, you know, would usually have a tag, you know, Tuesday night at 2 o'clock or something or at 9 o'clock or whatever. Well, those were all live announcements. And uh, so I was hired to do that and be the board operator on the audio side for the evening shift. Well, because it's a PBS station and the breaks were only every half hour or an hour, it was easy to do my homework, you know, between breaks. <laughs> so that that, that worked out great. And so working at the TV station then took me to uh, being involved in the videotape operations at the station, which wasn't really editing. It was just stand-up recording and playback. However, that led to my first job out of college, which was my first job as an editor. So this is like mid-70s as a linear editor. So um, that that on was... On Avid kind of, back then, right? No, no, no. Mm-hmm. This was on videotape. So, okay. so <laughs> this is mid-70s. So this is uh, two-inch uh, open reel uh, videotape edit pace. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, we didn't have a CMX. We had a, a, a Datatron was a competitor to CMX at the time. But that's uh, that's how I started. And then that led to different edit jobs. Uh, along the way, I was a, a facility manager for a few, uh, few different facilities and kind of, you know, kept editing while I was in the management role. Uh, and eventually came to the point where I decided I it was more fun uh, doing it than talking about it. So I kind of took a step back from uh, management and, uh, you know, predominantly just full-time editing. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of how it evolved. So as, as the technology changed, so when, you know, Symphony came along and, and you could do color correction, then, you know, I kind of picked that up as a, as a skill set. And, uh, you know, when Final Cut came out, it was like, okay, well, you know, scratch my head and figure out what 
why this is interesting. And uh, right around that time, I ended up uh, freelancing. Uh, basically, September 11th hit, the economy took a dump, and uh, you know I was out of a job. And so that's what started the freelance career. And, um, you know, the the good news and the bad news is I bounced around different projects, different clients, uh, different edit systems. And, you know, all of it uh, kind of adds to what you know and what you can do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What keeps you going when times get tough? I mean, I enjoy the business, right? And I enjoy the projects I work on. Uh but, you know, a lot of this is you enjoy working with the people that you're surrounded with. So, you know, if your clients are all terrible, then you're not going to enjoy much of the job. Right. And fortunately, I've been able to work with uh, really good clients over the years. And even if the project isn't so great, the clients are generally nice. And, you know, you try to do the best job you can for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I know your clients love you. You're you've always been very easy to get along with. Uh, you know, just quietly resolute, uh, and people appreciate that. So, I want to get back to grading for a sure. minute. And one one question that comes to mind are the monitors. We're doing all this work, and it always worries me about whether or not the monitors are correctly calibrated? What kind of monitors are we using? What do we do about HDR? I don't know that we even really have a proper solution for that. Maybe we do. I just don't know. Um, Can you talk about the monitors that you use and why you like them? Well, yeah, I'm I'm not too much of a purist on that. So, you know, the world I live in is the small to medium business uh, post-business world, right? And mm-hmm. um, that that's not a, you know, Hollywood budgets and those kinds of things. So that's an area that's been, I guess, benefited by the fact that the technology's gotten cheaper, that it's been easier to do things. But obviously, there are some compromises, right? You're, you don't have a $30,000, you know, Sony uh, top-of-the-line grading monitor to work right. with, right? Uh, so, I don't. <laughs> yeah. And, and so uh, I use uh, both a TV Logic and a, a Flanders, depending on what I have available. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, uh, the, the sp- the things that aren't that critical, I tend to just go by what I see on the uh, on the display. I have several different displays in the room, including a a large uh, Panasonic flat panel. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you kind of go by what looks pretty good on all of them. And I know that's not the the perfect way to approach it, but that is uh, what what you tend to be stuck with. Um, mm-hmm. I I have the luxury of working on projects where the, you know, it's not a grind, right? If you're, if you're a full-time colorist in, you know, a commercial shop in LA or something like that, it's going to be the projects in, you get it done as quickly as possible. You get it out the door and you really don't have time to second guess it. Um, and that, that, I, I tend to have more leeway than that, right? I can do a color correction, come back to it a day later and go, gosh, I don't know what I was thinking when I did that. <laughs> so, uh, Well, uh, you know, if you stare at something too long, your eyes adjust. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
absolutely absolutely and i have done uh jobs especially for um you know indie clients where they they really can't be in the room the whole time you're working on it where i'll get notes back and you know i get the notes and i just go you know, I'm just not seeing what you're seeing. You know, you're telling me it's oversaturated. I'm seeing it as being undersaturated. I said, so, you know, until we both get in the room at the same time and look at the same display, mm-hmm. uh, I'm just going to kind of, you know, not not make a lot of changes until we get that opportunity. So there are there are times like that where it you have to kind of figure out what somebody means when they say something and uh, different people perceive color differently just like different people perceive a sound mix and unfortunately i think we're in the world of phones and tablets where a lot of people are making their final decisions on their ipad or their iphone or whatever well and uh you know it's like in the audio world uh you used to have the little every studio had the, the the smaller oritone cubes which audio mixers tended to call the awful tones right but right. but those were the lowest common denominator of okay if the mix sounded good here then it would probably translate well on every range of speaker and to some extent the iPhone and the iPad are kind of that equivalent in the video world and uh, and so, you know, that's that's one thing. Uh, most of the projects I do are never displayed projected. Right. They're always displayed mm-hmm. on some sort of a a screen or a device or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I do some indie films and they do get their, you know, one or two theatrical screenings and then it goes on to whatever distribution. And sometimes you make, you know different judgments. I've done screenings where I've seen it and then I go back and say, okay, we've really got to make everything darker or whatever. And you're kind of taking it as a leap of faith that the projection, you know, was right, which is not necessarily a given. Well, no, it's not. I've been in theaters with filmmakers screening their films for the first time and everything looks too green. And I don't think it's not it's not the colorist's fault. It's the projector at that point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times. Uh, But, uh, you know, if if I were doing that full time, then I would definitely, you know, want to have some sort of a projected environment uh, where I'm seeing that at, because that's a that's a not only is it different in terms of color uh but it's also i think a different perception of how you perceive the color and so there's a there's a definite difference in terms of uh what the destination is supposed to be for the project and what you use for monitoring Uh, i'm really curious uh, what the new Apple XDR Pro Display is going to look like. Uh, obviously, some people are sounding pretty positive about maybe using it as some sort of a reference display. Other people are kind of downplaying that idea. Uh, I, I don't know. I have not seen one in person, uh, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I do know that in the stuff we do around the shop, we have a mixture of iMac Pros and iMacs and uh, a regular um, 
older model Apple Cinema, and the editors all work pretty much on the IMAX. They don't have any separate external monitoring. That all goes through the room I work for for kind of a final you know, look-see and QC. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that the iMac Pro screens are very inaccurate because they're set up for very bright images and they're set up for P3 color space. And I think if you're running in Final Cut 10, that's kind of compensated for. So what you see on the viewer in front of you is reasonably accurate. But if you're in Premiere, that same viewer image is not right. It looks too saturated and the reds are overemphasized. Uh, so I'm not a I'm not a big fan of making color decisions based on computer displays. But I know that that's sometimes all that people have. And so, you know, the best one you can get is uh, is the thing to go for. I mean, it's even true in still photography. It's not just video. It's still photography. You can deliver, you know, a session that looks absolutely wonderful and the client gets it and they say, oh, it's oversaturated. And you find out they're on a really low-level PC, yeah. you know? So how do you draw the line? That's really kind of scary. Yeah, I still, I kind of like, maybe I shouldn't, but I still like my old 5K Apple monitor. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the display that's, you know, kind of consumer but a bump up is the, uh, the OLED LGs that uh, a lot of people like for their client displays in rooms. Uh, because it's nice and big and the colors look good and it's reasonably accurate. Um, so, you know, a lot of it gets down to cost, right? If you're going to, mm-hmm. if you can afford to spend in the 1500 to 6000 range, you can get a pretty good display that's very accurate. If you really want to, you know, have something that's perfectly calibrated, then obviously you're going to go in the 6,000 to 30,000 range. Right, right. So do you get a new monitor or do you buy the new Mac Pro? Um, I just recently got a QLED, a uh, 65-inch QLED Samsung yeah. uh, television, which I, I really like. But I have to tell you that in the selection process, I was a little bit taken aback by the way the imagery has been tweaked by the television manufacturers. And it, it sometimes worries me a little bit that audiences are getting a version of what we produce that we don't want them to have. It's really saturated. It's too brilliant. Um, I don't even know what they're doing to it. It just looks terrible. And they're they're panning it off on everyone as, you know, high def. You know, those sets are all tweaked with a setting that makes them pop when they're in a brightly lit showroom, when they're on the floor at Costco or Sam's Club. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a that's a lousy viewing environment, but they're mm-hmm. that way so that they stand out. So that, that gets you to the whole, you know, filmmaker mode that people are pushing for. You know, it's not just the colors, but it's also the uh, – uh, the, the frame rate interpolation that a lot of these sets have on as a default. And it, 
you know, I just look at it and go, that's horrible. But other people are perfectly fine with it. Well, everything's subjective in our business, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you mind talking to me for a minute about multi-edit shops? Um, you know, how do we work with a combination of closely aligned, like people that are in the same shop or people that are remote, or if you're working with multiple editors using the same footage and, and the storage solutions for that. Do you have some advice for us about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, just like um, the computers and the software and everything else has gotten cheaper, uh, so has shared storage. So, uh, you know, when it was just Avid and a couple of other suppliers, those are very expensive systems, uh, partially because they were robust and partially because they were based on fiber channel. And that was all very expensive and none of the computers had the stuff already built in to deal with it. No, so I think you had to buy a $600 fiber optic card to add to your yep. tower. Mm -hmm. I had I have a few of those. They're still in the garage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so now everything, well, not everything, but most things are Ethernet-based. And as the Ethernet protocol has improved, you've got the performance. So for the most part, most of these systems run on either 1 gig or 10 gig uh, Ethernet speeds. If you have a computer that can connect as one gig, which most computers have that built in, or you can get a simple adapter. That's good enough for, you know, proxy file editing. It's good enough for a lot of HD editing. Uh, if you have a 10 gig connection, so an iMac Pro has 10 gig built in, uh, Sonnet and SanDisk and a few others make Thunderbolt to 10 gig Ethernet adapters that are relatively OWC cheap. OWC has a, a great one, actually. It's okay. The, All right. Thunderbolt 3 10 gig Ethernet adapter. Yeah. Um, great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, so it's really easy now to set up a system uh, and not have to be an IT specialist, right? Uh, you can buy some of these systems and, you know, uh, we, we're running both QNAP and LumaForge in our shop. And it's fairly easy to either set it up yourself through some sort of an easy start guide or whatever you want to call it, or to bring in... Um, uh, a, an IT specialist who just needs to help you get it set up or can help walk you through it on the phone or can team viewer in to your computer and just make sure all the settings are right. So it's very easy to get those things up and running. And then you're now in a setup where, you know, if it's two editors that just need to share files, that's within the budget. If it's uh, 10 editors that all need to share, you know, whatever that range is, obviously budget is always going to be a factor. But it's now at a point where having a simple shared storage solution that works is pretty much within the same cost as if you had a small rate array next to each computer. So, um, I would say any shop where you've got multiple editors working on different projects where they may all have to at various times touch that project, that's the point where you really need to look at shared storage. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to end up being, you know, sneaker netting a drive from this editor to this editor. Uh, but, you know, it, 
where where I'm working, we have uh, nine connected systems and different freelance editors. And depending on who's working on which system at any given time, you know, you come through and there's, oh, there's a revision for this thing we did last week. Well, it was done on, on a system that's not available today because somebody else is booked in there doing that. Well, you need to be able to open that up on another machine. And so that's where shared storage is is mm-hmm. real beauty. The, the other area where it's helpful is of our connected systems, one of those is our our media manager, and she takes care of you know checking files. Uh, we upload them to a client approval site, and she handles all of that stuff. And since she's also connected, she can do that from her desk without um, interfering any of the edit. Uh, processes going on. And that would be true as well if there were a logger or an assistant editor or something like that. So uh, it's really easy to do. And, um, you know, there are five or six uh, really good manufacturers. Uh, the, the, the trick for people to know, though, is they have to have a system that is designed for video because you've got certain companies uh, I mentioned QNAP. We have QNAP. They make good video servers, but they also make uh, consumer-targeted products, right? It's now gotten to the point where, gee, I want this media player that plays back stuff to all the different places in my house. And they've got products that address that. Well, obviously, you want to make sure if you're setting up something for video editing that you're not buying this device just because it's cheaper, because it's not going to give you the performance you need. So you do want to make sure you have a product that is intended for performance and for video and so on. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have a preference between QNAP and LumaForge, or do you just use whichever one's available or from your client? Uh, no, the the reason we went that route, we went QNAP first. QNAP uh, had been very solid, but as we started doing more native 4K editing, uh, it started to present some performance challenges. Mm-hmm. And so we... Uh, uh, I had talked to the guys at LumaForge on and off for a few years, and we we actually uh, did a demo with them. A couple of us flew out to L.A. and uh, took one of our projects and said, here, load it up. We want to you know, run it on four or five different systems concurrently and see what happens. And uh, so we did that, and we bit the bullet and uh, added that system. Uh, it's more expensive mm-hmm. than QNAP. Um, but the performance made the difference for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now we have both systems, and, and essentially the QNAP is there for um, legacy projects that we started on QNAP uh, that are still there. We use it for additional backup so that as our process in-house is we'll have a project folder for a job. When that job is done, we will back that up to a raw hard drive that sits on the shelf. In addition, we'll then move it to a folder labeled backed up projects right on the same storage. So it never is off the system, but it's just, you know, one level removed. And Mm -hmm. as the Jellyfish system, which is LumaForge's system, starts to get too filled up, 
we've still got capacity on QNAP. So then the next level would be to take that from the backed up folder on Jellyfish, copy it over to QNAP, and then delete it from uh, Jellyfish. So, you know, we have the luxury of having the extra system, which gives us some storage redundancy mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, not everybody is obviously going to do that or be able to do that, uh, but it's just worked out that way for us. Are you using long-term storage on anything like LTO tape? Or uh, We had LTO tape for a while, and it just didn't prove to be practical uh, because the LTO standards changed and the uh, capacities changed and projects started getting more, and it just wasn't it wasn't useful for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, I've been chasing LTO for years, and every time I get ready to buy a system, they've changed it and upgraded it, and there's a new version and different types of tapes, and I finally just went, whew, this is just too too, too much. I have to table this discussion with myself for a little while. But uh, I, a long-term storage is something that is a challenge for anyone working in media now, particularly since uh, the files are so big. Yeah, well, for example, we talked about the Cuba footage on the colorist reel. And Cuba, uh, that project was basically about a 10-day shoot, as I recall. Uh, That is probably around 30 terabytes of media total. And to uh, to copy 30 terabytes to LTO is uh, is not particularly fast. And, you know, people talk about cloud backup, but it's horrible to try to send that up on the cloud. So that's not no, you can't as viable of a solution as people want to promote it to be. You yeah, know, you, you can't. You, it's, the, the pipeline's not big enough yet. It might be in the future, but it's just not big enough yet. Whenever anybody tells me I can back up my stuff in the cloud, I just go, oh, right. You know, I'm sitting here looking at 250 terabytes of media for all the different projects. Uh, what do you do with that? OWC does have something which we'll talk about offline called the Flex 8. We'll, we'll talk about it. OWC does have some great solutions for long-term storage. So um, take a look at that. Uh, I'm not just saying that because they, they sponsor sure, this sure. show. Yeah. I'm a long-time customer of theirs. So, yeah, I would um, I would take a look at that. Anyway, if you weren't on LTO, then what did you decide to do? Well, our, our method for backing up is, you know, not completely convoluted, but it's, it's redundancy. So when uh, the typically on location RDP um, will copy things to like a small GTEC or some sort of a drive that he's got with him. And so that's how it comes to us. That gets ingested into uh the shared storage and it also gets copied to just a small western digital drive that sits on the shelf you know Mm -hmm. like a one terabyte two terabyte drive whatever once that media is on the the shared storage inside its project folder i'll go through and i'll rearrange it so i'll rename it if it needs to be renamed i'll make sure everything kind of fits our format then that whole job folder gets copied off to a removable, um, you know, uh, HGST or or a Seagate Ironwolf or, or, you know, uh, an eight terabyte drive or whatever we're using. And so at this point, we have 
three copies of the camera media. So mm -hmm. the, the cheap Western digital it got put on, the shared storage that it lives on, plus a, a SATA drive. Mm -hmm. So um, that, at least the original material, is protected somewhat. So as we go through editing, the Premiere Project file also gets copied daily by the editor to a Dropbox location. So our, our theory being, worst case, if the whole house burned down, right, we've still got the project file on mm -hmm. Dropbox in the cloud, and we've got uh, the original camera media on a drive somewhere that hopefully would would not be damaged. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it would be painful, but we could restore the project. Uh, mm -hmm. So so that's kind of our strategy at the moment. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I also like to, on any of these jobs, you know, generate stems, generate textless submasters, do all that sort of stuff. Because nine times out of 10, the stuff we work on is going to go through a slight revision. And oftentimes it's easier to go back to those pieces and build a new master than it is to like go back to the original <laughs> project. Right. That's why I never, never, ever, ever call anything final. It's just a new version number yeah. <laughs> and a date. Nothing is ever final. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Oliver, you are so full of really great information. Is there anything you want to tell the folks listening before we start to wrap this up? I promise you I wouldn't keep you eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have any words of wisdom, but I, I'd say in general, uh, don't get wrapped up in the tools. Uh, mm -hmm. Learn the processes uh, because the tools change. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I think we saw that with the uh, the launch of Final Cut 10. You had mm -hmm. such a a group that had only ever cut with Final Cut 7 that when 10 came around, it was like, you know, oh my gosh, the uh, the Earth uh, has stopped rotating or something. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I've I've edited on tools that have long since ceased to exist. And, you know, that's just the nature of the business. So, so understand the fundamentals, learn the processes, learn the workflows, and then you can adapt to any of the tools. There you go. Oliver Peters, editor, colorist, writer, tech savvy, futurist. <laughs> I'm going to call you all kinds of names, but thank you so much for, for taking time. What are you working on right now? Uh, well, uh, a mixture of things. I mean, uh, this uh, company I work for, we do a lot of uh, leisure and entertainment type clients. Uh, and so my time's kind of tied up with that. Some of it's standard corporate video fare. Some of it is uh, regular customer-facing material. So it's it's a mix of stuff. Well, that's awesome. So I encourage everyone to go to oliverpeters.com, O-L-I-V-E-R-P-E-T-E-R-S.com, or digitalfilms.wordpress.com, which is Oliver's blog. And rummage around, you're going to see some great stuff. And thanks again. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. And before I sign off, you know what I always tell you guys, get up off your chair and go do something absolutely wonderful 
wonderful today. Have an awesome day. And thanks to OWC for sponsoring our podcast and giving me the time and the means to speak to wonderful people like Oliver. Take care. 